0: Father, we're grateful that you've brought us together on this day to worship and to gather our hearts around your word and to be reminded of who we are, to be reminded of the great grace that you've given to us in your Son. And I, I pray during this these few moments together with these friends that you will open our hearts and our minds to understand uh, your law. It's admittedly a kind of difficult part of your word. and I pray that you will give the teacher clarity and those who are here, to listen, understanding, and and we want to tell you in advance that if any of this happens that it will be because of your kindness, and we're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, Gil Gil sends out emails asking for titles of these series that we're about to do. Um, I'm starting a a seven- or eight-week series today. Um, I'll start here, and I'll kind of go back, you know, to the uh, assembly hall, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, we're doing seven weeks on the book of Zechariah. I was like, I think they're going to be beating the door down to get in. Um, I said, uh, why don't we entitle it Hot Love on the Euphrates, you know, a, a study in Zechariah or something like that. I, um, so so I, I think Andrew was very kind to let me do the dean's class, just because some, some of you will come. Um, uh, admittedly, uh, Zechariah um, is. <laughs> It's a hard book. And I, I should say, from the standpoint of a kind of a, a platform of gratitude, um, I'm really grateful for these classes that I get to teach at Advent. They, they allow me to explore some of these areas that I haven't really gone deeply before. Uh, and, and Zechariah is a book that I've wanted to engage, in, I've done it in a cursory way, but I've wanted to ga- engage it a little bit more with some depth to it, and this is the class that I'm going to use as the means by which I do that. So I'm, I'm, gra- I'm grateful. If it's just three of us, that'll be fine. It'll still be um, worthwhile. Um, so let's think about Zechariah on some introductory matters first, and then I hope to at least this morning get through his first vision, his night vision that he has um, in chapter one. Um, you know, and those of you who've been in some of my classes before know about the minor prophets. Um, Zechariah is the second to the last of the minor prophets. Matter of fact, a um, a former professor of mine just published a little popular commentary on these post-exilic prophets, entitled "I thought it was a clever little title." The next to the last word. Um, in other words, if, if God's revelation, Hebrews chapter one, if God's revelation of Himself and His Son Jesus is the final word then these post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, um, they are the next to the last word, right? I think that's that's a clever way of thinking about it. Um, And and for those of you who have done some fiddling in in the Old Testament before, and I assume that's most of you, you you realize that the way in which our English Bibles are structured vis-a-vis the way that um, the Hebrew Bible is structured is a little bit different. If you get a chance someday and you're in Barnes & Noble and you're kind of wandering up and down the Christianity and Bible aisle, those are like huge aisles and where we are. And then you go to the Judaica section, that's a kind of small little area, right? Um, but there's, uh, there, there are translations from the Jewish Publication Society that order their translation according to the Hebrew canon, uh, which is a tripartite canon, it's a three-part canon you have the law, the prophets, and the writings. And there's actually a pretty strong indication in the New Testament that, that in the first century world, Jesus as well, that they're working with that self-same understanding of the tripartite understanding of the Old Testament. That's why in Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, Jesus explains to himself on the basis of, of, of Moses, the law, the prophets, and then it says in verse 44, and the Psalms. Uh, which may be uh, not just the Psalter, but understood as the first book of the whole of that section called the Writings. So you have the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. So that three-part canon is, um, I think, something that is worth thinking about. Um, A student of mine asked me this this week in class, you know, know, why are there no English Bibles, at least sort of Protestant or Christian Bibles? um, I shouldn't say Protestant, Christian Bibles, um, that, that don't organize the, the Old Testament according to that form. And I think the answer to that is really rather simple. Publishers just won't touch it, I don't think. Um, and the King James Version, which is a venable version, I mean. I, and again, remember, if the King James Version was good enough for Paul, it should be good enough for us, right? Um, that, that was a joke. <laughs> bad, bad joke. Paul didn't have it. Um, uh, but the King James Version is, um, you know, and that particular translation has really shaped the English translation of the Bible. I mean, all translations find their touchstone in the King James Version in some way or the other. Um, So I just think it'd be be a fascinating project to think about publishing an Old Testament according to the Hebrew form and order. Um, I I would have a dog in that fight. Um, But when you think about that tripartite form, law, prophets, and writings, the prophets, that middle section, is broken up into two. So that you have the former prophets and the latter prophets, and this might be a surprise to you, for some of you who haven't heard this before. the former prophets are books that we tend to think of in purely historical terms. Joshua, Judges, First uh, and second Samuel and first and second kings. those books form what the Hebrew canon understands to be the former prophets. And then you have the latter prophets, and those are the prophets that we typically know as prophetic literature. And that is Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. And This is a fascinating area of research and scholarship that's been done over the past 20 years to do some hard work and investigative work into this minor prophet collection where you have 12 individual voices, Hosea all the way to Malachi, And yet these 12 voices have been situated and framed in such a way that there seems to be a kind of internal conversation going on in the Minor Prophets that the sum is more, I mean the whole, is more than just the sum of the individual parts. There seems to be some kind of intentionality at play that brings together the Minor Prophets in a larger conversation that I need all of them together in a symphonic chorus Um, to give me something that I wouldn't necessarily have with the individual books all by themselves. For example, the book of Hosea ends with a call to repentance. I love Hosea chapter 14, verse 1. Take words with you. What a great challenge. What what words? What he's talking about. Words of repentance. Words of turning, which we're going to get to this in in Zechariah this morning. Turn to the Lord. And then you go to the book of Joel. you got Hosea, Joel, should we take a quiz? Who can list the minor problems? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. You have Joel in between Hosea and Amos. And what is Joel? Joel chapter 2 is an elongated um, exploration and demonstration of what that repentance looks like that Hosea was asking them to, to bring. So you have a call to repentance, you have Joel which is surrounded by repentance, you have Amos which ends with a, a challenge against the Edomites, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and then you have Obadiah which is a single little bizarre uh, prophet and the whole prophecy is a prophecy against whom? The Edomites. So you have H- Amos kind of tucking in to um, Obadiah, you have Hosea tucking in to Joel. Um, then you come to Micah. Uh, I mean Jonah, Micah, and Nahum. And this is another sort of fascinating thing with Jonah, Micah, and Nahum. Here you have Jonah. Just finished reading this book with some students. Here you have Jonah, who um, goes to the Ninevites. Not a happy group of people, I would say. If you've read any of your ancient history, um, a bad lot. And Jonah is told to go to the Ninevites. And unlike any prophet before Jonah, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against them because their evil has come up before me. Next verse. And Jonah arose and he fled to Tarshish. That never happens in the prophets. Ever, right? I mean, the prophets might not like it, and they'll even register their complaint to God himself. Ask Jeremiah, I don't like it one bit what you're doing to me. But next verse, and there Jeremiah goes, and he's doing it, right? Don't like it, but I'll do it. What does Jonah say? Don't like it, and I'm not doing it, right? I'm leaving. <laughs> and so you have this really, I mean, Jonah is a belly laugh of a comedy. It's meant to be. It's funny stuff. Now, so Jonah, he, he doesn't like it, and here Jonah is the Israelite. Um, the worshiper of Adonai, and he's down in the belly of the ship, sleeping. Um, and they come to him and say, wake up, you sleeper. And then, and then they find out you're, the problem is you. By the end of chapter 1, you've got these pagan sailors on a boat in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea who've thrown Jonah overboard, and they're worshiping and making sacrifices right there on the deck. To who? To Adonai himself, right? Then Jonah's praying in Jonah chapter 2. Then you come to chapter 3. All to say, you have this massive repentance with the Ninevites that happens in the book of Jonah. And, and Jonah doesn't like it. Jonah plays both the prodigal son and the elder brother all at the same time in one single book. He's the prodigal son and he's the elder brother. In chapter 4, I, this is why I fled to Tarshish. I knew that you were the kind of God who does this sort of thing. I knew it. And I don't like it. So Jonah goes out and, and he sits on the side of a hill um, waiting for a firework show, I believe. He thought God was going to hail down his, um, his judgment on Nineveh. And then, it is this is kind of fun, right, um, God gives Jonah, we don't know what this plant is. People, people translate it castor oil plant or we just don't know. It. But the Hebrew word for the plant that grows over Jonah is kikayon. Um, it sounds funny to you and I think it's supposed to sound funny right? Uh, Jonah, as the text says, loves. And the way in which the Hebrew grammar is structured there shows us that he doesn't just love it. He really, really loves his kikayon, right? And, and God uh, comes to him at the end and he says to him, Jonah, is it right that you love that kikayon, your little kikayon plant, your little gerd plant that grew over you and gave you a little shade? Is it not right that you don't love that kikayon plant so much and I shouldn't love these 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left? And then you, so you have that picture of the Ninevites, bad group of people, the wrong people, celebrating the grace of Israel's God. And then you come to a book like Nahum and guess what? It's the same Ninevites and they're um, under the lioness. A judgment of the self-same God. It's enough to give you whiplash in the Minor Prophets. Will the, it's like, it's what the Minor Prophets leave us with, in, in a way, is, will the real Ninevites please stand up? Is it the Jonah Ninevites, or is it the Nahum Ninevites? And here you have a book like Micah, right between Jonah and Nahum, that helps you to interpretively navigate these very different views on what the potential for the nations are vis-a-vis Israel's God. You can either, they become future indicators of possibilities for the surrounding nations. You can either be Jonah's Nineveh, or you can be Nahum's Nineveh. It's your choice, right? It's put before you. So you move from that to Jonah, Micah, Nahum, then you go into uh, Haggai. I mean, did I get this right? Habakkuk, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Then uh, Zephaniah, two great little books. Haggai, which is a book that's linked to Zechariah. And Haggai is all about rebuilding the temple on the far side of the destruction. And then Zechariah and Malachi. So these books have been put together in a way that they can all be read individually. We're going to do that with Zechariah. But they also together tell us something about the character of God. Hosea chapter 14 ends with a verse that I actually believe... Is an interpretive invitation to the whole of the minor prophets. And the verse goes like this Let the wise discern and understand God and his ways. That's the invitation. You want to have a if we're gonna make a t shirt for the for the minor prophets for the book of the twelve, the t shirt I think would say something like Let's understand who God is, right? And who is God? He's a God who's merciful, and He's a God who's severe. And, he, and, and the minor prophets bring that before us to way, in a way whose force is, frankly, tyrannical. Well, that was too long of an introduction to Zechariah. If you have cell phones or a Bible somewhere, do that. Um, let me read to you the beginning of Zechariah. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, The son of Edo. Now this is interesting because later on we will have Zechariah identified simply as the son of Edo. Who is Edo? Well apparently Edo, according to Ezra, was a priest that was a first generation priest that came back to Jerusalem on the far side of their exile. I'm going to explain all of this in a second. But this shows us something about the lineage of Zechariah, the prophet. Zechariah was in the priestly line. He was within the priestly guild. There's another prophet who's like that as well, actually several, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. They're priest and prophet kind of overlapping the one with the other. And here you have Zechariah who comes from a priestly line. And he is, for, for, I guess, uh, should best be understood as a second generation uh, member of the post-exilic community of Jerusalem. Now, let me give you kind of a big Goodyear blimp view on what happens in the 6th century in ancient Israel, all right? Now, just if you're interested in this sort of thing, I should let you know, I think the 6th century is, in some sense, the defining century of ancient Israel. It's a significant moment. It's a kind of before and after. Everything centers around this. Why? Well, you know the story. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom had been split, right? Rehoboam, Jeroboam, and that happened around the ninth century, early ninth century. And then with these two kingdoms that were split, it's, it's worth knowing because the Bible centers around the southern kingdom, around Judah and Jerusalem. But the northern kingdom was way more important and impressive from a geopolitical understanding and an economic understanding. Judah was a, the southern kingdom was a really a kind of blip on the screen, um, but the, the northern kingdom significant, um, significant enough that they were always under the eye of whoever the world dominant power was at the time, and the Neo-Assyrians were the world dominant power in the eighth century. Um, the northern kingdom got a little bit cocky. It's a very long, complicated story. We got a little bit cocky, out of sight, out of mind. We're not going to pay our taxes to the Assyrians anymore. And here comes Sennacherib with his troops, and they destroy the northern kingdom in the, early eight, in the late 8th century, and down goes the northern kingdom. But God in his providence and his mercy protects the southern kingdom, not without some significant infrastructural damage, but he protects the southern kingdom, and they're not conquered by the Assyrians. But you have prophets like Isaiah and you have prophets like Jeremiah who are saying, you better take a long, hard look at the northern kingdom because it's coming to your door as well. And this is how Isaiah ends in chapter 39 where, where the prophet looks at Hezekiah and he says, those Babylonians you just sent packing, your grandchildren are going to meet them. Right. And here comes the Babylonians in the, early, in the late 7th century. The Babylonians come in, they've overtaken Assyria, and by the way, just kind of give you a sense of the ancient Eastern world, the Neo-Assyrians, really big deal. Long, long um, reign and empire. The Babylonian, the Neo-Babylonian period, not as long, maybe sort of 50, 60, 70, 100 years, something like that. Not as long. Um, And then the Persian Empire comes after another long period. So the Babylonians were a bit of a blip on the screen, but a significant blip. And God tells them through Jeremiah the prophet, these Babylonians, they're the instrument that I'm using to bring my judgment onto my people. And through a long and complicated relationship that began in the 7th century and then moved into the early 6th century, you have um, Jerusalem and Judah Come under the siege of Nebuchadnezzar, and in 586 or 587 B.C., they are destroyed, and they are, um, they're raided. The, the walls come down. You can read the book of Lamentations. Tears your heart out. Now, it's awful what happened, right? Basically, it was a two-year siege. Nebuchadnezzar and his troops around Jerusalem, and the answer was, I mean, the, 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 the military strategy was, we'll wait longer than you can survive in there, right? And it turns awful. Read Lamentations and you see the horror of what was going on on the inside of, those, of the gates of Jerusalem. They eventually fell. The walls were destroyed. The temple was destroyed. So you think about this. It's hard for us to get a real sense of this. But maybe a close analogy would be um, seeing the capital, like a planet of the apes kind of scene, right? Seeing the capital. Um, of uh, uh, the dome in Washington D.C. completely destroyed. Right. I mean, this is this is the center. This is the symbol by which Israel understands their not only their national identity but their religious identity. Their whole being centered around the temple. And Nebuchadnezzar came in and he destroyed it. And he sent a majority of the population into exile into Babylon. It is. It was horrible, and it was defining. There was a before and an after. So that's why most uh, people who get, deal with the Old Testament think about pre-exile, exile, and then post-exile. But what do you have in all three of those, right? It's the exile itself that becomes the kind of means by which this historical dynamic is understood. Well, what happens? Right, is this, have, you, have you checked out your board yet? I'm kind of bored. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll give you a little bit of this here. 539 B.C., Cyrus the Great conquers Babylon. Now this is so interesting, because Cyrus, in Isaiah chapter 45, is identified as a Messiah. Isn't that something? Isaiah predicates Mashiach, Messiah, on Cyrus the Great. Why? Because Cyrus the Great is the means, the gracious means, by which God is going to lift and alleviate the burden of exile and allow his people to go back into their land. And in time, not just to go back into their land, but with the support militarily and financially of the Persian Empire to go back into the land and to rebuild their walls and to rebuild their temple. Now, many people read this as kind of a... um, you know, an early example in the Persian Empire of a, of a, of a religious and a pluralistic tolerance. A kind of, um, I don't know, a, a kind of uh, a modern Europe way back then. I don't think so, right? I think Darius, who ends up coming into charge in 522 BC, Darius the First. we read about him in Daniel. Darius had problems all over the place. Matter of fact, this first three years of as ruling as the em, as the emperor of the Persian Empire war, was an absolute mess. So I think what you have with Darius saying, "Why don't you guys go and re- here's some money, rebuild your temple, rebuild your walls." I think what you see Darius doing is saying, "I need you on my side, and I don't want to, have to worry about you." Okay, I'm buying your support. So it was a, it was a kind of political move, and not a, not a bad political move. But that's what happens during this period. You have Cyrus the Great; he's on the throne. In 539, he dies, goes into a period of, of somewhat disorder with his son, Cambyses. And then Darius I comes onto the scene in 522. Zechariah begins his ministry in the second year of Darius' reign. So that means that Zechariah begins his ministry in 520 BC. That's, that's significant, actually. So here's Zechariah, 520 BC. He's the son of Edo. He's the son of a priest. And look at verse 2. Matter of fact, one could say Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6 is really the thematic introduction to the whole of the book. The Lord was very angry with you, with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people this is what the Lord Almighty says Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the early, earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says, turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen. They didn't pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented and they said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserved, just as he determined uh, to do. Um, This section in Zechariah 1 is rich with um, themes that you find throughout the Minor Prophets, that you find throughout the Prophets, but here is Zechariah. Now let's get a sense of where he is uh, temporally. He's on the far side of the exile. Uh, A large group has returned back. There's infrastructure that's being rebuilt again. Darius tells Joshua, the high priest in Babylon, go back and restore the temple. He tells Zerubbabel, go back and be king in your land. So a promise of a Davidic king and the promise of a priest that would come back into their their land to reorder religious and political life according to the law of the Lord, that's happening. And here is Zechariah in the middle of that giving... I don't know how to say it. Same song, different verse, right? Same song, different tune. What is he saying? Return again to the Lord. What was Isaiah's message? Return. What was Jeremiah's message? Return. What was Ezekiel's message? Return. That is the common thread that you find throughout the prophets. The Hebrew term there is shuv. And it's, it's, you can just find it almost, at almost every other page. I'm being hyperbolic there, but almost every other page. Shuv, return to the Lord. And, and here's an interesting turn of phrase, and He will promise to return to you. He'll come back to you. So here they are, the far side of God's judgment. God's mercy is being poured out to them, Isaiah chapter 40, in a double fold. And what is the prophet saying to them? He's saying to them a message that's a common message that the prophets hold in in common. And that is, return to the Lord. Repent. Um, This is significant, I think, from a Christian theological standpoint. You've heard it enough around here. Um, that the life of a believer, the life of those who live in covenant relationship with our God, as a life that's marked by repentance. I was having this conversation with one of my children recently, who who seems to keep banging his head against the wall um, because of a certain pattern, um, and uh, he's like, "I just can't can't break this." And I'm like, "Well, brother, welcome to the life of a believer, right? And, um, we are we just we, we repent again and again and again." So here's the word that you have that's coming from Zechariah the prophet, repent. Now there's a significant aspect of this call to repentance that's embedded in Zechariah's name. Zechariah's name actually means the Lord remembers. Zakar is the Hebrew word for remember. Yah is the diminutive form of that four letters of Yahweh, Adonai. So it's Yahweh or Adonai, he remembers. And you go, well, he remembers what? He remembers himself. The Lord remembers his own covenant promises with his people. I think this is very important to recognize that God's relationship with his people in the Old Testament is not contractual. It's covenantal. God makes promises to his people. I will be your God. Yes, I will bring judgment on you when you fail to live in accord with my commands. But at the end of the day, my yes of mercy, my commitment to my own covenant promises to you will always trump the no of your faithlessness. Always. Yahweh, the Lord, he remembers. And that language of remembering, that's covenantal language. Think about the word remember in the book of Genesis, for example. Noah's out floating on the water, right? And the Lord remembered Noah. You're like, well, on our ear, that sounds a little bit strange, you know, because we think about remembering as um, I lost my keys. Oh, yeah, I remember where they are now. I think that's like you can see God going, I think, I think someone's out there on the water. Oh yeah, that's Noah. I remember him. Right? It's not, not that kind of thing. He's not calling to mind something that sort of seems to have been lost in the fog of his memory. It's a covenantal term. It's a term where God says, I'm about to act. I'm about to act, to instantiate, to actualize my covenant promises, my saving promises to my people. So when Zechariah comes as one who remembers, right, it says that the Lord remembers, what he's claiming, the, the very core of his name, is a claim that God has made salvific promises to his people. He's promised that his yes will always trump his no. Even though his no has a real sting to it, his yes will, will trump it. And that's why the book of Zechariah, and why we've titled this series is, There is a Hope for a Future there's a future. There's hope. That's what Zechariah is telling the people. Why? You would think that it would be all roses and uh, and daisies on the far side of the exile as they came back into the land. But you've you've read enough in Ezra and Nehemiah to know they come back into the land after being in exile for 70 years. And what do they find? It is a mess. The walls are in ruins. There's no governmental infrastructure. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. There's no temple. There's no centrality of worship. The place is a mess. You can imagine, I mean, think about the difficulty of this. Coming from a settled existence, even religiously speaking, in Babylon, a whole generation had been there, or two. And now leaving that stable reality in Babylon to come back to Jerusalem, where it is an infrastructural mess, You can imagine the kind of existential and religious angst that came from that. I thought the far side of the exile was supposed to be the instantiation of the promises of God. His promises to redeem and to save. I've come back into a war zone. By the way, you do realize, don't you, that many people didn't leave Babylon. Many stayed just for that reason. Why would we go back? We stay here. There's a Babylonian community that remained, a Jewish community that remained in Babylon for hundreds of years, right? So uh, this is a good reminder, I think, as here's Zechariah bringing a prophetic word in a chaotic mess of a city that's trying to reorganize itself according to the covenant promises of God. And here he comes in and he says, my name is Zechariah. I want you to remember God remembers. It's chaos now, but his promises will hold true. There is hope for a future. We have a future. Um, I've, I, uh, I've shared this story uh, a bit recently recently. Um, but i you know, it's it's been meaningful to me, so I'll share it, share it with you. Uh, we I had to have class canceled last week. We uh, couldn't do class here at the Advent. A friend of a friend of ours in Tampa passed away on Friday. Um, long-term friend for me, um, pancreatic cancer. I'm going to tell you what, what a beast that, that disease is. Um, almost, almost like cancer is a person, right? It's just evil. Um, and he was di- He was diagnosed in November of 2013. Um, and died last Friday, um, a week ago Friday, so you think about that, that really breaks a lot of the odds with pancreatic cancer, he's like in the fifth percentile for living as long as he did, um, so we're grateful for that, but you know, I i grew up with this man named Ron Hawkins. I, we, he taught me Sunday school as, as when I was younger. We went to the beach every summer as families. I can remember going after raw oysters for him late at night because his girls didn't want to do that. I hear my dad and I go off with him, and um, we traveled Europe together. So I mean, I've known this man for a very, very long time, um, and um, the cancer just began to take its deleterious effects on him over the past six months. So we were at the beach together again this summer, um, and he, I don't, you know, I don't. I'm not around that a lot, and some of you are maybe in your work or in your field. But I, you know, I'm not around that a lot, or not, at least not with people that I know well. And you know, it's hard to know how to talk to someone who's dying. I mean, that's that's a real challenge. And I have to admit, I'm sure I was all left feet in that conversation more times than I knew. You just so here we are. We're under a canopy around Anna Maria Island in Florida, where he'd been so many summers before, and our feet are kind of buried in the sand. And my kids are playing. His grandkids are playing. And uh, and I and we had a moment together, and I said, "Mr. Hawkins, let me tell me. Um, how can I help Nancy and the girls when you know this, you can't really yeah, When you know, um, and his voice, you know, his voice has gotten weak. And without any hesitation, and with the kind of clarity and boldness of voice, and I'm not being hyperbolic here. I know people kind of, but it really was the clarity of voice I hadn't heard in a while. He said, "I want them to know that we have a future." That's what, that was his word. I said, what a, what a, and I, I remember just, there was a kind of existential force that came from hearing that. And, and it told me, by the way, that he'd been thinking about it. It, it just came out too fast, right, and too clear. I mean, he's been processing it. It's hard for everybody else to talk about this, what's going on. But he's been processing it, and he's been thinking about it. Um, we were able to have prayer and Bible study with him and his family um, a week. He had a moment of lucidity a few days. I'd flown down to Tampa to be with him. He had a moment of lucidity for a few days. And then he kind of went out again, and I was very grateful to be there when he was lucid again. And we sat around a table, and we prayed, and we read Psalm 126 about the Lord restoring the fortunes of Zion. We're like those who dream, and we read that together, and we read First Peter 1 about momentary trials that work in this life, but they're, they don't even compare to the glory that awaits us. So we were just around the word where we should have been, and we prayed together, and we cried together, and, and there again he said, you know, I, I'm, I'm holding on to the promises of God. I know that we have a future. And the more that I've reflected on what he said and as he's experiencing it now, the more that it has dawned on me, I actually don't think there's much of a better summation of the entirety of the Bible than that simple phrase. To believe and to hope in the fact that we have a future. This is what Zechariah is doing for his people. He's encouraging them to know that despite the reality of the circumstances that you're in now that don't seem... To line up with what you believe the promises of God to entail, do you see, you see the intention of that? In other words, your experience right now, the suffering that you're going through now, when really we 're out of the exile now, the judgment's over, we shouldn't be having this suffering anymore. I mean one can by, by the way, uh, the, uh, in the book of Peter, Peter uses the language of exile and after exile to describe, I think illustratively, what it means to be a Christian in this life right now as well. Why? Because we know the promises of God to be true. We we know what it is to, to, to come to the cross and to see that definitive moment as the defining moment of our existence and the sole hope for our future. We know that to be true. But we also know that right now, that doesn't seem to be all lining up with what I see on the news, what's going on in my family, and really what's going on under the surface of my own chest, if I'm honest at times. Um, I talked talk with somebody recently, who was who, a minister, who, kinda, who struggles with depression. It's certainly not a very understandable thing, given the weight of, of issues that he deals with. And, and he was like, you know, the kind of depression I struggle with is the nihilistic kind. And it's the kind that goes, I know that Jesus died for me, I know that I have a future, but all this stuff going on now, I, I just cannot make sense of it at all right? It's it's, it's absurd. And you probably feel that way too sometimes, right? Um, And here's Zechariah steps into it and he says, we can't always put it together. Um, You can't always see what's going on in the middle of the fray, but I want you to know that the Lord remembers and that he hasn't forgotten you. And the fact that you're here now, or let's put it in Christian terms, the fact that the gospel has found you and has spoken into your world, He hasn't forgotten you. He's for you, as all those hymns we sang together just a few, an hour ago. I love those hymns. He's for you. In every way that He can be for you, He's for you. Now that doesn't exonerate you, from the complexity of living in a post-exilic, uh, complex world that seems to have lost its moral and infrastructural way, doesn't exonerate you from that. You've got to live in that world, and you live in that world as a pilgrim, but you live in that world as a pilgrim filled with hope that God is remembered, and if God cannot forget himself, he cannot forget his promises. You think about from the standpoint of the identity of our God, and from the identity of how you understand your own human selfhood, now, we don't really understand ourselves very well, I don't think, right? Matter of fact, the truth of the matter is, and you all know this to be true, our self-perception more often than not is a self-deception. That's a hard thing, I think, to come to terms with as, as we age, or as I age, right? Because we have a kind of perception of ourselves, right? And then people start talking to you about how they perceive you, and you're like, that's not how I understand myself, right? Now, Who's that guy? Uh, and so you have this sort of, just really this wrestling with understanding who we are. Let, let's be assured that we do not transfer that kind of insecurity about our own selfhood to God. He's very, very clear on who he is. He understands himself. And he understands himself to be in covenant relationship with us, and he remembers. Uh, what time is it? Oh, I have to finish. Um, well, next week we'll talk about red, white, and black horses. Uh, standing among the myrtle trees, riding around the whole world, looking at everything, and coming back and saying, "Looks like everything's okay." We'll need to figure out what they mean by that. Uh, that's a little bit of an interesting thing because it doesn't seem to be okay for us, and it certainly didn't seem to be okay for Zechariah either. So, what does it mean when these horsemen come back and they say we went over the whole earth and it's and it's all peace and it's all good? We're going to wrestle with that. That's my little teaser for next week. All right, let's pray. Father, you're kind and your mercies to us, leaving us these prophetic words. Zechariah, in such a pointed way, says, where are your ancestors? They're gone. But the prophetic word of the Lord stays forever. Lord, your prophetic word that you gave to your servant Zechariah is with us now. And as we enter into this short study together, I pray that this ancient voice will become alive and new and fresh in our midst as we seek to hear the word of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.